glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And the verse that grabbed my attention as you were reading along there is verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Granted, that might be on my end. It's on negative 20. I don't know what's, what's going on. Um, and as that verse grabs your attention, uh, that's really where I wanted my focus to be, but it's very difficult to focus on that verse without it being in the context of the verses prior to it. And really, you could read the verses after it. The, the context is suffering, and suffering with the Lord and for the Lord. Now, I say this. If you got up this morning and say, you know what I want to do? I want to suffer. I think you'd have a problem. Something's wrong with your mentality if you like suffering. If you liked it, it's not suffering. Amen? So the context is here. May I say, suffering is not inherently righteous. There are people tonight suffering from disease or poverty. That doesn't make us righteous. Suffering, making for yourself a life of suffering. Some people uh, give themselves a life where they... They, they, they deny themselves certain normal things that God has provided for you to enjoy. That's, that's not inherently righteous. The suffering that's talking about here is suffering for righteousness' sake, meaning you're in a world that hates God, in a world that hates righteousness, and because you've been saved out of that world unto a life of obedience to God, the world's not going to treat you well. That's the way it works. And so when that happens, it's suffering for right. Jesus said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad if we suffer for righteousness' sake. Why? Why does he say to do that? For great is your reward in heaven. May I say this? You try to live the Christian life without focusing on eternity, and you will get discouraged and quit. If you are simply, I've shared this with you, I'm certain before, but I had someone near and dear to me one time say, you know, even if the Bible weren't true, this is a point in time where their life was going well, It'd be worth it to live as a Christian anyway because it's a good life. And at the time they said, yeah, well, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I don't agree with that today. I agree that living for the Lord is a good life, but the, the idea was even if heaven wasn't real and even if there weren't eternal reward, the best life to live is the Christian life. Well, that's easy to say when you're having accolades for good decisions and your family is going well. The thing, person I'm thinking of today Life has turned sideways to that person's sense. And if you don't fix your your sights on eternity, then pretty soon you're going to get discouraged because in 1 Peter, this is written at a time when Christians were suffering immensely. Peter would later be be killed by persecution under the very uh, suffering that he was writing about. And so the, the Jews that he's writing to have been Jewish believers had been scattered abroad through persecution, and he's writing to them about what kind of mindset they need 
in the midst of that. And when we come down to verse 10, he's talking to them about ministering and giving. A few weeks ago, uh, we dealt with this idea of giving and how out of deep poverty uh, the churches of Macedonia gave and how we might have the mentality when we are in great need, that's no time to be ministering. But that's not true. Here are people that are suffering for their faith and they're reminded you've been entrusted with gifts from God, you've been entrusted with the grace of God, and you have then a responsibility to give what you've been given to others. It would be like this. If, if, if any parent uh, went to the bank and withdrew a certain sum of money to be evenly divided between all the children in the family handed that wad of money to two of the kids and says, now it's your job to take what I've given you and share it with your siblings. If that dad came later and said, well, how's it going? How much of the money do you have that I gave you? He says, I still got all of it. And it's six months later. Is that dad going to be happy? He gave that to them to keep or to give? To give. We've been given that we may give. That's the context of verse 10. But it's set in the context of suffering for the Lord. And so I want to give you three points out of this tonight. This is what I believe the Lord has given to me. I want to pass on to you out of these 11 verses that deal with our mindset, our motivation, and our ministry. Those three things I believe are addressed in these 11 verses. Here's what I believe. I believe you could take this outline, pull it out. You could go right over there to other books in the New Testament and you could plug the same outline into other places. I believe you could go and take Titus chapter 2, where it talks about we live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior. We could preach very much of what I'm going to preach tonight right there out of Titus chapter 2. You could take this and preach some of it, and we will. We'll get to Titus chapter 3 tonight. I believe you could go to the book of First Timothy, and you could go to Romans chapter 12, or First Corinthians chapter 12. Romans 12 talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. We could go into First Corinthians chapter 3, and Second Corinthians chapter 5. And really what I'm trying to say is, the heart of this message could be found in a lot of different places in the New Testament. And when that's the truth, what you're finding is then a thread of truth that the Lord continues to repeat in different ways, in different contexts, to get in our heart and our mind a clear picture of what it means to be a believer, a Christian, as we live in this life. And First Peter is tremendous because it is dealing with doing so in the context of suffering, something, to be honest with you, we don't know very much about as Christians in America. And I'm grateful. I'm glad we don't suffer a severe persecution. I do believe... Even Christians in America, if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. Someone's going to ridicule, mock you, do something if you live for the Lord. But uh, we want to look at this tonight. And again, I'm going to give you three things out of these verses. And so let's go back. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. And when Peter begins to, to speak to them, and he's going to give them some very clear, practical instructions, such as use hospitality, use the spiritual gifts you've been given. But prior to that, he's going to deal with their mindset. He's going to deal with their mindset. I believe this. If you never get settled in your mind that when I got saved, I was changed. When I got saved, I was changed from a person who lives to please myself. I was changed from a person who lives to please men around me. And I was changed to... It is assumed in the Bible that when you got saved, you were saved to live unto God. Romans chapter 6 outlines this very clearly, that as many as of, uh, of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ, have been baptized into his death. Meaning, when you got saved, you died to an old way of living. If you were saved as a child, you had lived long enough to know that the person you were was rotten and deserving of God's judgment. When you get saved, you are dying to that. <laughs> and you are now living under Christ. So Peter begins with this when he says this, Uh, He begins to speak to them about having a consecrated mindset. A consecrated mindset. We might call this an attitude. The kind of attitude we have. May I say this? Your life will hinge on the kind of attitude you have. The mindset. He's going to use the word mind, and it's used more than once in the book of 1 Peter. But how you look at something is going to determine how you respond to it. I believe the message tonight dovetails to some degree into the message this morning. The way that Naomi looked at her circumstances determined the decision she and Elimelech made in response to it. 
Had she learned to look at a famine as God's instrument of instruction in her life, she might have stayed right there and learned her lesson there. Someone would say, but then there wouldn't be Ruth. God would have worked all that out. We have things to learn, and they're written for our admonition. And here tonight, there, yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I really believe the Lord's directed a theme with us today. Here's the point. How many of you remember when you surrendered to salvation? God only has one way of salvation, and you have to submit to get saved. God says you'll only be saved through Jesus Christ. You're not righteous enough. I will not accept you as you are. You must come through Christ, my son. And if you believe on my son, I'll save you. Is that what the Bible says? Over and over and over. And I love salvation because it's crystal clear in the Bible. John 3.16 summarizes so many other verses that salvation, forgiveness of our sins, is through personal faith in the living Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's that simple. And when you got saved, you had to, by faith, submit to that truth. You had to what the Bible calls obey the gospel. After you get saved, that's not the last time you submit to God. That is the beginning of a life of submission to God. And before we got saved, we were rebels. Amen? So after we get saved, the rebellion... It's supposed to be put off. We'll deal with more of that in just a moment. So then you get saved and God begins to deal with you about sanctification. Meaning, you're mine now. I don't want you to live like you used to live. You used to be a liar. You used to be filthy and dirty and a blasphemer and hateful and ungodly. Now, I want you to be true. I want you to be pure. I want you uh, to be diligent. I want you to be clean. I want you to be holy. And God begins to deal with us about certain practical things in our life, not so that we may be saved, but because we are. And He begins to deal with us and clean us up and deal with us about living a life of obedience instead of a life of rebellion. And all these things, by the way, they don't happen so clear-cut. Okay, God, they're about salvation. I believe a lot of times before you get saved, He's already dealing with you about the fact you're not sanctified. You're not living for Him. And He convinces you you need salvation. Now that you're saved, you belong to Me. Present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And as God's dealing with you about those things, He's dealing with you about serving. God saves you not to sit you on a shelf, but to use you in this world until He calls you home. And for years... My teaching, my preaching, my own personal thought and devotion, I read through that, yes, God wants every person to be saved, but to be saved you have to submit to God's will. It's not God's will that people get saved. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come repentance. But before you'll get saved, you have to submit to His will to save you. God's actively working to save souls today. Just so many won't submit to Him and let Him do it. God is also actively working in the heart of the saved to sanctify, to purify, to cleanse us, to fit us for His service. He is willing to sanctify us. Would you agree? As we submit to Him. The First Thessalonians chapter 5 talks about that the God would sanctify your whole spirit and soul and body. As the verse of Kings of claim, Faithful is He that calleth you who also will do it. That's about sanctification for the purpose of service. And God is faithful to do that if we'll submit to Him. And as God deals with us about serving, He knows how He wants to serve. He gifts us, according to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, He gifts us to serve Him. He gives us certain gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can serve Him. He's willing for us to serve, enabling us to serve as we submit, we'll serve. But just as much as a call of salvation, a call of sanctification, a call of submission, there is also a call to supper. We are called to suffer for His sake. Meaning this, can you live a faithful Christian life without sanctification working in your life? No, He's going to sanctify you. And if you're obeying, He's going to sanctify you. Can you live a faithful Christian life without serving? Well, I have another S. Can you live a faithful Christian life without soldiering? (laughs) He'll, He'll deal with you about that as well. Can you live a faithful Christian life without suffering? No. Now, there's something inside of me. Look, how many of you, when God was working to sanctify you, there are some things in your life that you enjoyed. That's why they were in your life. And God said, but I don't enjoy it. I don't want that in your life. And your first response was, really? i got to give that up? I like that. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Because said, no, everything God doesn't like in my life, I never liked it anyway. Nonsense. I want you to serve in this capacity. I can't. I cannot do that. 
I cannot confront a complete stranger and talk to them about what's going to happen to them in eternity. I cannot do that. Somehow God will keep after you until you say, okay, God, if you'll help me, I'll do it. You, You with me? Same with suffering. Something naturally in us says, no, I do not want to suffer. I don't like suffering. I like being comfortable. I like being happy. I like feeling good, don't you? I believe this. I believe one of our deepest regrets in our lives would be to end our life having never suffered for Christ in any fashion. To have never had the privilege for our relationship with Him to cost us anything. How many fellows have you ever earned a blister that turned into a callus working? Not just fellas. Ladies? May I ask something? Does getting blisters feel good or feel bad? Every year, inevitably, when I go out and hoe my garden, I end up getting one of my hands torn up a little bit from that repeated process of doing this. But man, am I glad to do it. Because you know what I think about? Fried potatoes. Not just potatoes. Fried potatoes. In essential oil, right? (laughs) Those who know my language, they know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It's good, and it's worth the pain to get the product. Anything, David said this, I will not offer to the, to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Suffering, we get some horrid idea in our mind of what it would be like and we push back. And this is what I believe I was trying to aim at and the Lord was trying to aim at this morning. If we're not careful, we imagine and try to craft a life of faithfulness to Christ excluding any kind of suffering. Peter is informing those he's writing to, that's not what needs to happen. You need to arm yourself. That's the term he uses with the same mindset that Jesus Christ has. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Why did he suffer? Because it was the plan of God the Father for him to come and to suffer in our place. Now, we don't suffer to save a soul. Jesus did that. But we suffer with him that he might continue to save souls. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with, and I've circled in my Bible, the same mind. Let me put it to you this way. If I've got a mind uh, that I I really, I don't want anything to be too terribly difficult. And let's say uh, my wife and I decide we're going to take a walk. And I thought, you know, I just want this walk to be relaxing. I don't want to have to... um, You know, I don't want to have to make my feet hurt. I don't want to have to get them wet. I just really want a stroll in the park. And in her mind, she's got this idea, no, I would like to take a a long hike and go see, you know, the forest. And she she doesn't mind to get a a little wet or to uh, get her feet hurting a little bit because she's got in her mind she wants a long hike through the woods. And I got it in my mind, no, I just want a nice little stroll in the park. And as soon as my feet start hurting, we're done. How long are her and I going to walk together? We take off, I'm going for the stroll in the park, and my feet start hurting. I say, okay, honey, I'm ready to go home. She says, we're just getting started. And she knows the, 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 the places we can see if we're willing to go on up and hike around this way and back down this way. And I say, no, 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 I wasn't in for aching legs today. If I'm not willing to suffer, and we don't have the same mindset about what we're willing to endure to get something done, we're not going to go together very long. How many you ever worked a job with somebody like that? You thought, you know what, yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit before we get the job done, but the job will get done is well worth it. The reward of the finished task is worth it. So one person's got the mindset, I don't mind some blisters. I don't mind I don't mind a little damage. I don't mind feeling bad at the end of the day. That's what it takes to get a job done. The other person says, I'm just not into that. And you try working those two people together. Remember, we had one guy he hired on. I worked at the golf course. He literally he hired on so he'd have golfing privileges. He lasted about three weeks. Because he didn't want he didn't want any kind of pain associated with work. He wanted the privileges. And my point is this. Christ came and suffered for us in the flesh. Peter says, you've got to arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Here's why. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. The, the whole context of this is when you live for the Lord, the retribution you get from men. 
I know of no one single cause that causes the, the children of God to draw back from the life God has called us to live. Peter's going to go on here in a moment and talk about a separated life unto God that's lived to the will of God. And it's very practical. If you're going to live to the will of God, you can't do these things anymore. That's past. This is now your present. This is what you're supposed to be. And nothing causes God's people to draw back from the life that God is calling us to live according to His will more than knowing the retribution we will receive from our fellow man. I don't know of anything that causes people to pull back from living a distinctive life to the pleasure of God more than if I do what God wants, people are going to treat me bad. They don't like that. Now, most people won't spell it out like that. But it, it is, it is the, the number one deterring factor keeping us from simply living to the will of God, and that's the fear of man. The fear of man, the fear of what man will think of me, the fear of man will, what man will do with me. How many of us understand this? Turn, turn very quickly because I want us to get this mindset down to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. How many of us know that what God loves, man hates? And what man hates, man, man loves, God hates. That's the way it works. You say, no, that's a skeptical view. That's what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 16. Um, let me find my place. Give me just a moment. Let's go back to verse uh, th- 13. I believe is where I want to be. No servant, can serve, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, verse 14, the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. All he did was say you can't serve money and God at the same time. And they start giving him a hard time. Verse 15, he said to them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. And notice what he says. But God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. That's a mouthful. That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. You say, what does this have to do with 1 Peter chapter 4? Everything. If we are going to live for what pleases God, if we're going to live for what is acceptable in the sight of God, it's not what man values. It's not what the lost world looks at and esteems highly and vice versa. If we're going to live for what man esteems highly, reputation among men, wealth, riches, a power in this life, all those things that are highly esteemed with men, God says, I don't, I, don't, I don't want that. I don't care about that. And by the way, the mentality of the world, meaning that which man highly esteems, it crept into Peter's mind. Jesus told Peter, uh, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest the things that be of men, and not those that be of God. And we understand this, I believe, inherently inside of us. What God looks at and says, Oh, that's wonderful. This was touched on in Sunday school this morning. This is what was dealt with. God looks at a heart like David's and says, I love that. King Saul looked at it and said, I'm going to kill it. I hate it. Saul lived for the approval of men. David lived for the approval of God. It got David in trouble with Saul. And we understand this tonight, that if you and I are going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to have a mindset that Peter says you're going to have to arm yourself with. You're going to have to put this on. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. It takes a certain mentality, and it's the mentality of Jesus Christ. I would rather be suffer, suffer from men and be right with God than be right with men or agreeable to men and displeasing to God. I would rather the one... He made a choice. Our Lord and Savior said, I do always those things that please Him. That's what Peter's talking about. When he says, arm yourself with the same mind, you are willing to suffer, suffer loss, suffer pain, whatever it may be, in order to fulfill the will of your master. And so the consecrated mindset, there's a call to it, verse 1, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, meaning uh, there's a point where you're willing to suffer in order to cease from sin. Uh, in order to do what's right and please God, I'm willing to suffer for doing what is right. Verse 2, that he no longer, he's going to give explanation here, the cause, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the what? 
the lusts of men. This is a general statement. You know what he's saying? Before we got saved, we lived to the lusts of men. Our own lust, the lust of the world, what men value, that's what we live for. Pleasure, things, uh, prominence in this life. But he said, once you're saved, now that you are saved, you're a child of God, you will live the rest of your time. Meaning this was not a temporary decision. It's a decision, a mindset says, for the rest of my time on earth, I will no longer live for what men want, including myself, but to the what? Will of God. And by the way, where's the middle ground there? Can't you not do both? There's no middle ground, either to the lusts of men or to the will of God. And he said, the consecrated mindset says, I am given for the rest of my time, to, because of he's my Savior, to living to the will of God, not to the lusts of men. And that's the mindset we must have. The consequence is then, uh, verse uh, 3 um, and four, for the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. I mean, he's talking about the way the lost Gentile world lives. He said, our, we've, we've lived that way long enough in time past. That'll suffice. When we walked in lasciviousness. Lasciviousness. Without going into any great detail, lasciviousness is an over-interest in sensual, sexual things. Our culture is lascivious up to its ears. Listen, Christian, it is not the will of God for you to keep your mind on that kind of thing. That is called inordinate affection. It is to, to dwell constantly on the sensual and the sexual is lascivious. And you, Peter says, your past life, you, that's, you, that's suffice. You don't need any more. So you can live the rest of your days without ever being lascivious again. You did enough of that in the past. No more. There's a distinction between the past life and the new. So he says, in lasciviousness, that has to do with the mind. In lust, longing and yearning for the fulfillment of my own sensual pleasures, excessive wine, uh, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries. He's dealing with everything that surrounds idolatry, the banqueting and the drunkenness and the immorality surrounding idolatrous practices. He said, the time passed before you got saved. You've done enough of that to suffice. For the rest of your time... You need to have the mindset, now I live to the will of God. But in the context, that, but when you do, there's going to be suffering attached. He explains. Verse 4, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. So, oh, you too good to eat with us today? Well, you're going to the bar. I'm not going to join. Oh, too good for us, huh? Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Uh, someone starts telling a joke that stirs the wrong kind of passions inside of you, and you say, you know, I can't be around for that. I, that's stirring lasciviousness in my heart. By the way, it's still a good word. Uh, I'm not going to be around for that. And you begin to walk out of the room, and one of them is convicted by your departure because they know they shouldn't be talking that way. And they say, where are you going, preacher boy? Right? They think, this is weird. Why would you not drink? Why would you not, you're a young man, you're a young lady. Why would you box yourself in and limit yourself from pleasures? Peter makes it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit very clear. That's past. And they're going to think you're strange. You're a weirdo for not joining them in their licentious lifestyle. Friend, that was 2,000 years ago. We think we got a corner on that in our culture, don't we? Said 2,000 years ago, when you say, I'm going to live to the will of God, not to the will of men. Isn't it interesting? He says, to the lusts of men, meaning the lusts that men have, they're going to pressure you to join them in. Men are not content to sin alone. They've got to pressure you, join us in our sin. And so he says, no, that's not the way you're supposed to live. Not to the lusts of men. That's the way you lived in time past. It was sufficient. No more. And so then the call is to have the mind of Christ. Did Jesus ever succumb to conducting his ministry to please men? How much pressure did he have on him to conduct his ministry according to the lusts of men? The Pharisees tried to change his ministry. His own disciples tried to change his ministry. Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And Peter says, oh, no, you're not. You know, that was as Peter's lust. Anybody got an idea why Peter didn't want to go to Jerusalem? He knew if he suffers, we do too. We just like him. We just like him. 
there's something natural in us that says, no, 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 no. And the point here tonight is this. God says, if you're going to forego this, you're going to have to arm yourself. Now, if there's any hunters in this room, and there are, what does it mean to arm ourselves? Well, just make sure you got both of your arms, right? We know exactly what it means. If you're going to go out and you're going to pursue an animal, you prepare your weapon. You know what? I've gotten to where now I try to do more preparation than I used to because there's times I've had my weapon in my hand, but I hadn't taken it to the range. I hadn't made sure I got hit with it. Uh, this year, so on and so forth. There's times I've thought I've done that, and I still don't shoot straight, but that's beside the point. You don't walk out to go bear hunting without some weapon. You arm yourself, meaning this, it doesn't happen on accident. How many of us know this? We have armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, truth. We, we have the truth. We have the gospel, but you have to intentionally, purposely put that on. It's yours, but the Bible says, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. You've got to intentionally get a hold of what the Lord's given you and arm your mind with the truth. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are told to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. I am willing to suffer for righteousness' sake because now that I'm His, I'm living to the will of God, not to the lusts of men." May I just say this, and I feel so strong. This is so much for our young, young people. It's for all of us, no doubt. But one of the struggles you have to face and overcome as you enter into a world that hates God is am I going to live for the lusts of men? What people lust and want me to be with them? Or am I going to live to the will of God? And the question to answer is, is am I willing to suffer in order to please God? Because one of the reasons, the primary reasons... We yield to the lust of other men as we don't want to suffer at their hand. We don't want to suffer reproach. And that's natural to not want to. But there's nothing more strong or nothing stronger than the love of Christ to constrain us to be willing to suffer with the Lord for the Lord's name's sake uh, than the love of Christ, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, which constrains us to do so. So Peter deals with a consecrated mindset. You must arm yourself with the mind of Christ. I belong to the Lord, and I'm willing and ready to suffer for His name's sake in order to do the will of God rather than the lust of men. May I say this? I don't know of a generation in any recent history in this country that has more pressure from the culture to compromise and corrupt and sin like this generation that's coming up. The lusts of men are being promoted on every corner, Every screen, everywhere you turn, the, the world wants the young people in this room to turn out to be wicked and corrupt. God doesn't want that. And what they've got to learn to do is put on the mind of Christ. Let me ask you something. If Christ would do that for us and suffer ultimately, can we not, in love for Him, put on the same mind and suffer minimally? Because our suffering in comparison to his is minimal. Number two, he deals with verses one through four, the consecrated mindset. Number two, in verses five and six, the consecrated motivation. Why would you put on the mind that you're willing to suffer to do right? Because as to eternal consequences, look at verse four, wherein they think it, the men who don't know God, think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. They'll call you names. They'll, they'll label you. They'll brand you. You're a cult. You're this. You're this. I'm concerned there are people who claim to be Christians today and every time somebody tries to live a life to the will of God, they call them a legalist or judgmental. They're joining the world and persecuting God's people. I'm talking about people who are sincerely, genuinely seeking to live for the will of God. You and I, can I preach here for just a moment? You and I should never, ever, ever be a source of discouragement to anyone sincerely trying to serve Christ. Not in any way. If you know that someone's trying to do that and they're weak in conscience and doing what they know is best, you encourage them and help them to grow. We should never mock anybody because we're convicted by their better example. And those that use their entire influence today to rail on those who are living and seeking to live godly lives are going to be in trouble with the Savior. And so then the consecrated motivation, verses 5 and 6, he said in verse 4, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. You, he's talking about, who shall give account to him? Look at who he's reminding them of. You're not going to give an account to them. We're going to give an account to him. 
So who shall give an account, give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Who's he talking about? Well, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to judge the living, that's the quick, and the dead at his appearing. Verse 6, for, for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. The best explanation I read on this verse is this. Because of the context of the chapter, it seems to be referring to those who've died for the Lord's sake. Uh, the gospel was preached to them. They're now dead for the Lord's sake. But listen, men judged them according to the flesh. Men judged them and said, you're strange. We're going to take you out. You're a blight to the culture. You're a nemesis to humanity. We're just going to... We're, by the way, in the Roman culture, that's what, what took place. So men in the flesh judged them to be unworthy of life. But when it came to God, the Bible said, but they live, even now, though they're dead in the flesh, they live according to God in the Spirit. And so when he talks about judging the quick and the dead, it's the same thing as saying in Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who've died in Christ, those who are living in Christ, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat. And what he's calling their attention to, arm yourselves with the mind of Christ because you're going to give an account to him someday. You and I are not going to stand at the judgment seat and give an account to our co-workers. We're not going to stand at the judgment seat and give an account to our family members. Am I lost? Have we lost everybody's name? We're going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know of anything that ought to grab our hearts and minds daily more than the truth that we are literally going to stand before the one who died for us, who saved us, who purchased us, out of a life of sin, gave us absolute liberty to live a life of godliness and righteousness. The child of God who's been saved today has been liberated from sin. And we will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. Meaning what we were freed to do, did we do that? Freed to serve, free to be faithful, we've been liberated. And so then the consecrated motivation is this, we are accountable to Christ seeking the approval of of Christ. See, this is redundant. We've heard this. It is redundant. Do you know why? Because it's in so many different places in our New Testament. If you read through your Bible, you're going to read over and over. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All deal with the judgment seat of Christ. Titus chapter 2. We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is not a fear factor motivation. It's an accountability motivation. We are going to give an account for what we've done with what we've been given. He's going to come right from this into this matter of stewardship. So we are accountable to Christ for the approval of Christ. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I don't, I'll be honest with you. As a preteen and a teen boy, I felt the pressures of unsaved companions. I felt the pressure of those who claimed to be saved and were living ungodly lives, I felt that pressure to join them in sin. But may I say this? You can get to the point where you say, nope, I'm not going to live for that. I'm not going to live for the approval of my friends. I'm going to live for God. But you know what? You go down the line and at some point in time, you have other people who are living for God. And you have to decide, am I going to live for their approval or for His approval? And the fact of the matter is, we must remember we're all going to stand before Him at the judgment seat. It is, this, this ties in with our series of lessons in Sunday school on godliness. The root and the, fruit, uh, and the basis of godliness is living a life for Him. Living a life that is for His approval, His pleasure, and so forth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, very quickly if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so the mindset is this, the consecrated mindset... I live to the will of God, not to the lust of men. Why? Because I'm going to answer to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to men. I'm going to give an account to Him. He's the one that saved me. He's the one that has entrusted gifts to me to serve Him with. He's the one I'm going to give an account to. Let me put it to you this way. You young people can understand this. You are at home. Your parents, let's say your dad, assigns you a responsibility at home. He says, this is what I want you to do while I'm gone. I'll come home and I'll check your work and see if it got done appropriately. And while dad is gone, two or three of your siblings decide they want to go play something while everybody's supposed to be working. And they say, are you coming to join us? And you say, well, not till my work's done. Oh, goody two-shoes, come on. Always got to get your work done. Come on, we can do our work later. We got enough time to play and work before mom and dad get home. 
Come on. You say, no, 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 no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my job. So you don't like us. If you liked us, you'd come play with us. And all of a sudden, you start feeling the pressure from your siblings to do what you know you ought not. you got a job to do. You know how it ought to be done. And they say, come on, come on, come on. We've already decided. We'll do our work later. But right now, this is our time. We're going to go down and play in the creek. We're going to go do whatever. You begin to think about this. And boy, the siblings are putting the pressure on you to go and abandon your responsibility. And all of a sudden, your mind flashes forward about the moment Dad pulls in the driveway. And you think... You know, when he pulls in the driveway, my siblings aren't going to be around. It's just going to be me and dad looking at what I was supposed to do. And you think, you know what? I would rather when he comes home, him to say, well done, good job, than right now to hear them say, you're our favorite brother. You're our favorite sister. Now listen closely. This is real life. We have people surrounding us say, come on, come on. Pull off. Quit being so serious-minded. Lighten up. Live a little. Don't you like us? You think you're better than everybody? And the Lord gently reminds us, it's not them you're going to give an account to. It's me. We're not going to stand and give an account. There'll they'll be nowhere around. Just be us and the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us, how ye ought to walk and to... What are the next two words? Please God... So you would abound more and more. He said, we've taught you how you ought to walk. That's your practical daily living to please God. I believe this with all my being. There's way too much of feeling what the Christian culture thinks is acceptable today rather than focusing on what is pleasing to God. Trying to figure out how we can please God and men, how we can please God and the world can't be done. We just need to focus. Listen, we started this year talking about what? One thing. You know what it means to be a single-minded Christian? I live my life to do one thing. That's it. Please God. And if I have made Him pleased, at the end of the day, I have had success. I don't start my day to make anybody upset with me. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like people being upset with me. If I got done preaching today and someone said, Boy, we like you, Pastor. You are a profound preacher. You're our favorite preacher. That's what, I, that's what my flesh likes. I mean, honestly, that's what my flesh likes. But if that's all I ever heard, I assume I'm not doing my job. It's truth. We, we have to say what God once said, preach what God... I promise you, though, with God being my witness, I have to fight back not wanting to preach in such a way so that everybody likes me. That's natural. I don't get up any day and think, who can I make mad today? But men will put you in a position where you've got to take, make a choice. Am I going to make God happy or men happy? And it gets very clear. I know what God wants me to do. I know what God's word says. I know what God's will is. And we've got to side with God or side with men. And on this occasion, we, already ought, we ought to already have the mindset, oh, if it costs me, to do right, I've already made up my mind. I'm following Christ. And if it costs me, it's like the three Hebrew children. Our God is able to save us, but if not, we've already made up our mind. We'd rather suffer and die right than live wrong. Amen? That's what Peter's saying. Arm yourself with that mind. Why? Because we are to live for his approval. May I say this? We have much being preached about today regarding the grace of God and that God has accepted you in His grace. And that's true. If you're saved, you've been accepted in the Beloved. How many know that there is a difference, though, in being accepted and being acceptable? My children are ours. If we adopted a child, we would accept that one as ours. I, had adopted, I have adopted siblings. They're my brothers and sisters. I mean, they are in. That doesn't mean I always agree with them. They'll always be my brother and sister. I love them. I love them deeply and love them dearly. But that doesn't mean everything they do is acceptable. If we can understand that at a human level. I love my children. They are ours. I will never I will never have any plans of saying to any of my children, no matter what they do, you're not mine anymore. No, they're mine. But they're not always acceptable. All right? We're accepted for Christ's sake in the beloved. 
But we are to prove what is acceptable to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto the Lord, which is our reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Consecrated mindset. We've called to it. The cause is that uh, we have been saved out of a past life unto a life living to the will of God. Our cause is to do what He wants us to do. The consequence is they'll think us strange and call us names and speak evil of us and so forth. The consecrated motivation is we're accountable to Christ. We're seeking the approval of Christ. We live to, to meet His approval. And then finally, that results in a consecrated ministry. It's not on accident that you have this order. You've got to have a consecrated mindset with a consecrated motivation before you have a consecrated ministry. And I don't mean full-time ministries in the sense of vocation. I mean all of us have a ministry because we've all been gifted to serve. He says this in verse 5, "...who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. But the end of all things is at hand." Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. He says, we are rolling up to the end of the world. You've got to have a right mindset. It's the same thing again. You've got to be sober. Be vigilant, he would say in chapter 5, verse 8. Then watch unto prayer. Stay alert and pray. Seek God. Commune with God so you can know His will. Be sober. Who's preaching this to us? Think about this. Some naysayer, some scorner would say, Peter, don't you preach to me about watching and be sober. I read about you in Mark chapter 14. You who slept when you were supposed to be praying, don't talk to me about being sober. Don't talk about me about watching unto prayer. If anybody could preach about watching unto prayer and being sober, it's Peter. You better stay on your toes spiritually. You better stay in prayer. Why? Verse 8, And above all things, have fervent charity. So, so be sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. He's talking about brethren. Not just charity, not just love, don't just be selfless, but fervent charity. Verse 9, this is all about ministry. Use hospitality. That's part of our spiritual gifting, the gift of ministering and of serving one another uh, in, in that way. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Open your home and your heart and your pocketbook to one another without grudging. As every man, here it is, verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The gift here he's talking about is not salvation, but the gifts of service. We read of them in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, the gift to exhort, the gift to minister, the gift of helps, the... All these various gifts have been given. How did you receive the gift? You earned it, right? May I ask something? If I say, Camden, I will minister to you when you prove to me that you are worthy, a worthy investment of my time and attention. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not talking about entrusting ministry. We're talking about serving you. I have something. It can help you. But I'm not sure. I'm just not sure about you. I'm not sure if you're worth my time. No? God says, as you receive the gift... So minister. Freely you have received, freely give. May I say this? If we start saying, well, I'll serve that one, not serve that one, and I'm not talking about fellowshipping, I'm not talking about compromising over sin, I'm talking about withholding what God's given us because it inconveniences us to serve. You realize in the parable of the stewards, the, the master gave to three men talents, that which had value, do you realize the third one got in such serious trouble over what? What he did or what he refused to do? He got in trouble over doing nothing. He was given a talent. The first one had five talents, and he took his five talents, and he invested those talents, meaning he lost them that he might gain them. He spent them that they might earn. He gave that it might be given. The second man did the same and both had 100% return. The third man, falsely accusing his master and saying, well, he's an austere man and he's, he's going to do this. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll play it safe. I'll bury my talent in the ground. It's a picture of taking your God-given spiritual gifts and investing them in earthly things only. Hear me tonight. 
I'll take my spiritual gifts and I'll invest them in my career. I'll invest them in my own happiness. I'll invest them in earthly things. But I'm not going to risk investing them in the master's business. He might get upset with me about how I do it. Instead of getting, I don't want to get in trouble. I wouldn't want to get in trouble. So I'll just do nothing. You know, Peter's saying you can't do that. If ever there was a time, let me ask you something. Why do you think he has to say have fervent charity among yourselves? When iniquity abounds, what happens? The love of many. Jesus said in the last days, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Can I just, I'll testify before I'm done here. I'm almost through. I noticed a few years ago, the Lord brought something to my attention. It was troubling and comforting at the same time. Anybody ever been there? Troubling because I could see there was an error in my life. Comforting because I could say, oh, that's why. I get it. This is why I'm, this is why I produce certain problems in my life. And I realized, and I'm not, I've not conquered this yet. I'd build a safety barrier around myself when it came to Christians. Because I might get hurt. I've been hurt inside the church. You? My hurt came when I was yay high. You may have heard of PTSD. And it's a real thing. I mean, you know, in spiritual warfare, you have the same thing. You get wounded and you say, I don't want that to happen again. So what you do, instead of putting your armor on and going right back into the battle, you say, if I can avoid serious conflict. And what happens is we watch people isolate themselves from God's people. Well, I don't want to get too close to somebody that might hurt me. They may. Look what they did to Christ. If you and I were Jesus, would you have invested in Peter? How about Thomas? And he had a Judas, and he even invested in him. My point is this tonight. Peter had to say to them, you've received a gift that God has entrusted for you not to keep but to spend on people, God's people. And if you hoard that and keep that to yourself, in, a, in the context of persecution, they were suffering. Do you think perhaps when a new person showed up at church, somebody said, you think they're a spy? I don't know. I'd hate to invest in them. I might get too invested and then they might hurt us. Remember when Saul of Tarsus wanted to join the church at Jerusalem? The Bible says they were afraid of him. I wouldn't want to get too invested and too involved. So what happens is we become cold. And we have a gift. Listen to me closely. If you're saved here tonight, young or old, you've been given spiritual gift or gifts. And God says you and I are responsible to him to spend those on other people. I believe this. I don't know what all my gifts are. God's given me an ability to teach and preach his word. You teach and preach, sometimes people like you, sometimes people hate you. I believe I'm in sin if I don't use that. If I don't use what he's given, and there may be other things. Some of you have the gift of giving. Some have the gift of mercy. Have you ever exercised the gift of mercy and been burnt? You showed mercy on somebody and they used you. How many have ever opened your home in hospitality and someone knew you a little better because of the hospitality and later used that against you in their speech to rail on you because you opened your home and let them know you a little better? Am I making sense here tonight? Peter says fervent charity among yourselves. Fervent charity. Could Peter not have lived the rest of his days saying, what if we get another Judas? I mean, he betrayed Jesus and... If it weren't for Judas, Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. What if I get a Judas in my life? Friends, you live your life that way. And you'll hoard your gift and bury it on earth. But Peter reminds us, but wait, wait, wait. You have an accountability to the master. And that accountability says you've been given a resource, spiritual gift. Therefore, you have a responsibility. Luke chapter 12, I believe it's verse 48. To whom much is given of the same is much required. And so in the context of suffering, he's reminding them, I'm calling you to a soberness of mind. I'm not calling you to be careless. I'm not calling you to be casual, serious-minded and on point and give yourself to prayer, but you are also called to service because of stewardship. Notice what it says, verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards I love this phrase, of the manifold grace of God. The word manifold means exhibited or appearing at diverse times or in various ways. So God's grace is not only known through salvation. We are, we are recipients of God's grace every day. 
any ability you and I have to discern the Word of God, communicate it to others. You have the ability to preach the gospel with clarity. God gave you that. Let me ask you this. Let's say somebody's given the gift of evangelism. Now, everyone wants to do evangelistic work, but some are gifted that way. And they go out and they try to do the work of evangelism, and they get five doors slammed in their face on the first day. They say, you know, I don't like this. And they take that gift and they sit on it for 20 years afraid to talk to anybody about the Lord. Is there going to be accounting for that? Absolutely. How about the church? You got somebody that's about to quit serving the Lord and someone is an exhorter by gifting, meaning God gave you the ability to use your words to encourage someone else to make a right decision. And you think, but if I encourage them to make that right decision, they might never talk to me again. They might get mad at me. They might call me names. They might do this. And so instead of risking my own hide to exhort them to do what's right, I'd rather just let them quit church and fade off into the sunset. God says, no, as you've received, so minister, we are stewards of the manifold, meaning God has exhibited his grace. We are unified in our doctrine, but we are diverse in our gifting. God's grace is manifold. He says in verse 11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, meaning you speak because you have the word of God with you, so speak as if you're speaking directly on his behalf. If any man minister, let him do it as, as, uh, uh, do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end game is this. As we steward, meaning we've been entrusted with things from God to use for His purposes, and as He stewards those with us, we'll give an account to Him for that. And when we do use what He's given us the way He wants us to, whether speaking or serving, who gets the glory? He does. If I'm loaned a car... Let's say I'm going to have to take a 500-mile trip. And someone says, you know what? I want you to be safe. I want you to travel well. And you're on a very important trip. I'm going to loan you this nice car to drive. And I drive up in someone else's car. And it's a very nice car. And I step out and somebody says, boy, that's a nice car. What's the first thing I'm going to say? Thank you very much. It's not mine. You know what? When it comes to the spiritual gifting we've received, thank you very much. It's not mine. It's been entrusted to me. My question to us tonight is this. We've... Look at this text. Where am I? Do I have that consecrated mindset? I'm armed with this mentality. God is worthy of my obedience and doing His will even to the point of my suffering. I'm willing to suffer in order to cease from sin to do the will of God. That's your mindset. If not, you need to arm your mind with that mindset. Have I focused in and honed in on my motivation is doing the will of God because I know I'm accountable to Christ. I believe in the judgment seat and I'm going to live for that day. And if not, then we need to get that in order in our mind and get our motivation right. It's not about praise of men. It's about pleasing Him. And then finally, am I stewarding properly the grace God has bestowed on me? God gave me salvation. God gave me His Holy Spirit. I'll say it again. No one is more equipped in this county to tell other people about the Lord than the people sitting in this room. The Bible knowledge represented in this room alone surpasses what most people have. I talked to a man today. He said, I got a Bible. I don't read it. Then, friend, it's our responsibility to, sh- to give that. How about amongst ourselves? How I many of you know there are discouraged Christians today, people that are trying to do what's right, but they're discouraged. They may just need you to use what God's given you to minister to them. Amen? So let us be sober and watch unto prayer. And as we've received the gift, so minister it to others being stewards of the manifold grace of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Do you realize the Lord gave us the gifts He's given us for a specific purpose? Then what is faithfulness? I'll give you this final illustration. We often send our boys to the store. I often pull out my debit card and put it in their hand. They know the pen. It doesn't, it doesn't scare me to do that. Because we can say, go to the store and buy three gallons of milk and then to... Two days later, we'll buy three more. Two days later, we'll buy three more. <laughs> three gallons of milk, uh, four packs of buns, um, and two pounds of cheese. And if they come back without it, and I, this is commendable, it's because they couldn't find it. And they don't come back having bought those items plus five candy bars and this. And, no, no. I give them my resources for a specific purpose. The Lord Jesus Christ gave us his riches for a specific purpose. 
And if I'm not using them according to the purpose he gave them, I am not being faithful. What if I get send my boys to the store with a debit card and they say, well, I was afraid that if I ran the debit card, it wouldn't run right, so I end up not purchasing the stuff. Like, did they have it? Yes. Did you have the card? Yes. Do you remember the PIN number? Yes. I just didn't want to do it wrong. So here's your card, Dad. We're going to have a bad time. Because that's not going to fly. Hear me now. There are Christians living their lives that way. I have the gift of God, but I'd rather not use it than maybe use it the wrong way and get in trouble. And I'll just, here, Lord, you can have it back. As we have received, so minister as stewards. Mm-hmm.